Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Can, can somebody shut the door in the back there? Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Dave, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Welcome to this meeting. Uh, and the topic, I should know this. Humor. Is humor and positive sobriety. Um, let's see. So I'm going to be facilitating, and I'm joined by Jim B., who's from uh, I'm I'm from uh, uh, Franklin, Tennessee. Um, I've been sexually sober by the grace of God in this fellowship since August 1st, 1985. Something for which I am frequently, but never sufficiently, grateful for. Um, I'm glad you guys are all here. Um, Each of us are going to share our recovery on this topic, and then we're going to take some time to answer questions. And the way we're going to do that is we've got some uh, cards here that you can write the question down, or if you'd like, uh, you can just raise your hand and we'll recognize you and uh, say your question and we'll we'll try to answer it as best we can. In the spirit of the fifth tradition to carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you please silence all cell phones. And with that, let's open with the serenity prayer. Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, in the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. So, without further ado, here's Jim B. from Ah, Somerville. Isn't that funny? (laughs) I'm up here with a guy that's, you know, I'm a little bit intimidated already. My name is Jim, and I'm a sexaholic. And my sobriety date is uh, July July, uh, 7-11-06. So I got 13 years, and he's got 100. Um, I have to be honest with you guys. I, uh, I'm prepared to talk for a few minutes, and then I thought that it would be open, you know, we would have open mic and people would take turns and come up here and tell jokes or be funny or whatever they want to do about humor. Uh, but that's not the way it is. I'm going to share for a little while, and then he's going to share for a little while, and then we're going to have you write questions and, and we're going to have to try and answer them. So it's just a little bit different. And uh, it was a curveball that was thrown to me about an hour ago. So here's a test. What page in the big book is We Are Not a Glum Lot? Anybody know? 132. 
Um, has everybody in here heard that that uh, that statement? We are not a glum lot. Yeah. Um, and it's true. I want to read. I want to read a sentence around that, and then another sentence, and then expand on it a little bit. Um, so it says, "We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot." If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. And that, you know, and then it goes on down to the bottom of the paragraph page and it says, but why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and we have been given the power to help others. Um, and I just think that's huge. I mean, I am so happy to, to I'm a happy, jovial guy. And I'm not going to tell a bunch of jokes up here or anything, and I'm sorry if that's what you expected. But, uh, I mean, you know, one-on-one, I'm going to interact with you, and I'm going to make fun of you if I get a chance. If I get an opening, I'm going to say something funny, and, you, and, I'm, and I hope that you'll throw it back at me. I mean, and that's just the way I am. I insist on having fun in my sobriety. I mean, I think everybody in here has seen or been in a meeting where somebody comes and they've just acted out, or their wife just left them, or doom and gloom, and they're and they're all gloom like that, and that's and that's not inappropriate. But uh, what if that's all we did? What if we just came to meetings and we talked about our problems, how bad things are, how you know we've really screwed up, and uh, we've got these consequences, or this person over there is picking on us, blah blah blah. I I don't think. I don't think I would choose to to come back a lot anyway. Um, I I have been taught by my sponsor that uh, I bring my problems to my sponsor and my solutions to the meeting, and that's and I think the difference in a bad meeting and a good meeting is is bad meetings are when when it's doom and gloom and you're telling how bad things are, and uh, good meetings are telling about yeah I had a bad day but this and this and this and here I am. You know, I care enough about my life to be at a meeting right now and be in the solution. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I really feel strongly about that. I, uh, it's not, and this might sound arrogant or something, but for me, not acting out today was pretty easy. I mean, it's not the hardest thing for me to get through the day and not act out. So why do I keep coming to these meetings? Well, because I'm so damn arrogant, I'm so selfish, I'm so I got such an ego, I'm, I'm so afraid, I got some anger, I got all this stuff, and I call it bumping into people. You know, I get out, I don't sit, I don't sit at home too much. Uh, you know, I don't think that there's growth in, on my couch in front of Price is Right. Um, <laughs> but if at least I get out and I go do some t- tasks. And, and I'm kind of an extrovert. I, I try and have a conversation with everybody that comes in my path. And, uh, you know, maybe lighten their day. Maybe that's, that's what I like. And that's, that's the humor part that I, that I like about it. Um, and so the other thing I want to read is from the, from the 12 and 12 on the, on the fourth tradition. Has anybody ever seen one of these? Tim H. used to be in our program. It says, it's a bookmark, and it says, it's not them. And, and what, that's, what that says to me is, you know, 
My stuff is my stuff. It ain't about you. I mean, you know what? I might blame you, but I, if I'm if I'm a victim, I'm in trouble. I am in trouble because there's no help for a victim in my judgment. Uh, it's 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 not them. It's me, and I just it just have to be in this book. Well, so at the end of Tradition Four, they're talking about this Middleton group and some problems that they had had, and somebody left this this message, and it's turned into a to an AA aphorism. Rule 62. Um, don't take yourself too damn seriously. I mean, and that's, and that's, that's one of the reasons I keep coming back, because I'll do that in a minute. You know, uh, somebody will say something, or they won't say something. That's even the worst thing. You know, when I see somebody, and I know them, and they're supposed to know me, and they pass right on by, ugh. How could they not have stopped to say hi to me? I mean, it's just you know I take I do it I do it over and over again. Maybe I'm, I can claim some some victory or some some progress, not perfection, but I still I take myself so seriously. I think that I'm I'm important and I think that I'm vital and I you know all this stuff that's just not true. Um, and so taking myself too damn seriously is is, is one of my things too. Here's something. I've got a, I've got a joke, and it comes from the AA book, but it's not. It's kind of kind of iffy in an essay meeting, but I'm gonna, I'm going to take a risk. <laughs> so there was this, there was this dyslexic female prostitute. And she was trying to get sober, and she was trying to quit her profession. And so she asked somebody in the meeting about, where, where does it talk about sex in this thing? And they said, you know, our, our, the funny thing about the big book is what page that sex is on. They, she, they said, 69. <laughs> so she's dyslexic, y'all. So she goes to the book and looks at page 96. And y'all know what's on page 96? Let me just read you the first paragraph on page 96. And this is a dyslexic prostitute. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. (laughs) Search out another sex alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. <laughs> that's what I got. That's all I got, and I'm going to turn it over to you. And we're gonna... <laughs> well, that's what I get for letting him go first. I'm not sure how I got this topic. Um, I volunteered for a bunch of them, and this must have been one of the ones I circled. Um, As I said, I'm Dave, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. And, uh, you know, like my sponsor said in the previous meeting, um, uh, I'll start by telling you a little bit about about my story. Um, You know, my 
My first exposure to pornography occurred at the age of eight, and uh, it was it was exciting, and uh, I was exposed to it by a, a neighbor kid who was um, fourteen or fifteen at the time. I was I was eight, and so today I guess that would be called uh, sexual abuse, um, but because it was so exciting, um, it. It offered me um, an escape, and uh, you know I pursued pornography and and uh, uh, soon masturbation, you know, for the next twenty five years, and I had no clue that this was an addiction until I turned on the TV one day, primarily to get a, a lust hit, and it was uh, I'm dating myself, okay. Uh, Phil Donahue. Anybody remember Phil Donahue? You know, he was he was one of he started in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, on the radio with talk radio back in the I'm going to say probably late '60s, early '70s. And uh, you know, by this was 1984, and uh, by then he had become pretty racy, and. Uh, I, you know, I turned on this program primarily to get a lust hit, and there was a guy sitting behind a screen. And uh, if you recall, you know, it was primarily women in the audience, okay? So here's the scene. There's a guy sitting behind a screen, so you, all you could see was his shadow. And he's uh, describing his behavior, which is, you know, I didn't know what the topic of the program was. I just turned it on. Uh, this guy sitting behind the screen uh, saying that he's got a porno stash and that he um, he compulsively uh, masturbates and there's all this giggling going on in the in the in the crowd and that he's addicted to it and I said oh shit that's me and uh, I sat down and you know watched the remainder of the program uh, the the topic of the program was sexual addiction. And that's how I found out that I was a sex addict. And you know, at the time, it seemed like an accident. Uh, but looking back now, it, um, it, was, it was a God moment, clearly a God moment. And the only thing I didn't, didn't hear at that time was, you know, what's the solution? You know, the, the, the guy who was, was on there was promoting a book. Uh, the title of the book was Sexual Addiction. Uh, It's now called Out of the Shadows, and uh, I didn't hear a solution. So, you know, what am I supposed to do? You know, intuitively, you know, it says in in the white book, we intuitively knew what we needed to stop doing. And, you know, I knew what I needed to stop doing, uh, but the question was how. And uh, it took me about another year and a half um, you know, I tried on my own. Uh, I could white knuckle maybe a couple of weeks at best, which seemed like an eternity. And um, I finally, um, my marriage was breaking up. I went to a, I went to a, a counselor, uh, a psychiatrist, and uh, after. A couple of yeah, I, I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. My my wife had moved out. I was about to lose my job because I couldn't perform at work. And I knew 
if I didn't take some time off, I was going to get fired. And I was going to lose my job. And uh, so I took some time off and got things back together. And at, at the end of the, you know, we were winding down our sessions. I was no longer in crisis. I said, you know, I don't think this had anything to do with the breakup of my marriage. But I believe I have a problem with sex. And, uh, you know, the psychiatrist reached into his desk and, and uh, pulled out a piece of paper. And he, he wrote, wrote down on a, on a small piece of paper, S.A., P.O. Box 300, Simi Valley, California. And he slid it across the desk to me. I had no idea what S.A. was. Um, he said, you know, if you write to these people, they may be able to help you. And uh, so I wrote a letter. I didn't know who I was writing to. I didn't know what SA stood for. I'm not sure if I knew I would have sent the letter. But I said, you know, I think I have a problem with sexual addiction. What do I do? Um, about a week later, you know, it turned out that that uh, letter ended up in our founder's garage. He was working out of his garage in Simi Valley, California. And uh, they sent me the pamphlet. And it had the... Uh, the problem, and I read that problem, and I cried. I said, I bought it, I sold it, I traded it, I gave it away. I was um, addicted to the tease, the forbidden, the intrigue. The only way I knew to be free of it was to do it. And, uh, and fortunately, I'd had kind of a somewhat of a spiritual awakening, and so the God didn't scare me. Um, and, um, so I got, I knew this, this was going to be it for me. Um, we were going through the sale of my house at the time and, uh, I, so I, I couldn't get to a meeting, um, as right away. And, but finally the guy, a guy called me and he said, Hey, I, you know, I've been contacted by central office and, and, uh, I understand that you Think you identify, and and uh, he got me to my first meeting. That was August 1985. Um, I'm one of the. My sponsor has the same situation. Um, I've been sober ever since, and it's a miracle. Uh, that's the only way I can describe it. Um, it, you know, that the thing that I couldn't stop doing got lifted from me. Um, now you know I I learned to pray. I learned to surrender. Um, I was pretty. Gl- I was a pretty glum guy, you know. I'd lost my. I'd lost my marriage. Um, my my job was going nowhere, and uh, a couple months later, I, I would be laid off. Uh, my career was everything to me at that point in my life, and uh, but one day at a time, um, it got better, and so. I spent the, uh, you know, so I'm, at, I'm, a, I'm in a fundamental Christian denomination at the time. And so the outlooks for me looked kind of glum. Um, I was 33 years old. And it looked like, uh, you know, my denomination didn't believe in divorce and remarriage. And uh, I was looking at, I could be single and, and celibate the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that did that did not appear appealing to me at the time, but you know, one day at a time, 
you know, that's I, I, I grabbed onto that and um, stuck with it. And, uh, you know, today I'm not in a relationship or I'm not married or I'm you know, I was separated for two years. So fast forward, um, I lose my job a couple months later. And uh, but I was already looking and I found a job in another city, Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, you know, we, were, we had one meeting a week in Rochester, New York. That's where I was at the time. I was at a mental institution, which seemed like an appropriate place for an essay meeting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every week when we walked in, there would be all the, the clients would be in these white outfits. They were inpatient. And they'd be out smoking their cigarettes. We had to kind of walk, run the gauntlet to get into the meeting space. And... Uh, but that's how it started. And uh, so I moved to Detroit, Michigan at the time. It had a couple million people. It has probably a, a million less now than it did then. Um, but there wasn't an SA meeting. There were, there were other S fellowships. And so I tried that for a while. And uh, um, it was my contact with central office. You know, what do I do? And, you know, he suggested I start a meeting and, and uh, so I went to the place where the other S fellowship was meeting and said, hey, I, you know, I'd like to start an SA meeting. And they, they told me, you know, the only day of the week that, that were available is Sunday afternoon. And, and I had figured out by that time that the only day of the week we could have a meeting would be on Tuesdays. Okay. So when, when they told me uh, Sunday afternoon, I said, well, you know, that's just not going to work. So I kind of said, well, I did, I've done my best. I guess God doesn't want a meeting in, in Detroit. And uh, so I came to my first international conference in, in, uh, in St. Louis in 1986. And, uh, um, you know, there were a lot less people than there are now. Uh, some, there, are pe- there are people in this room that were at, were at that conference in 1986, and I'm sitting in this conference in 1986, and you know there, are, there have been two times in my life that I feel like I've actually heard the the you know God speaking to me, and uh, not always in the in the most pleasant terms. But anyway, um, so I'm sitting in a meeting, and I, I I can't tell you what the topic was, but as I'm sitting in the meeting, I hear this voice in my head: "I went the meeting on Sunday afternoon, dummy." And I, that's what I heard. And I went back from St. Louis. Now, I have to tell you a funny story. I'm in, I'm in the airport in St. Louis. I'm, I'm living in Detroit, so I'm in St. Louis. I'm in the airport. Um, my, my first cousin has this knockout wife who I always lusted after and thought was really attractive. And I always wondered, how did, how did he end up with her? <laughs> so I, I'm sitting in, a, in the newspaper. I was fast, or I was sitting in the St. Louis airport, ready to fly back to Detroit. I'm reading my newspaper. And I was fasting. I was fasting that day. I decided I was going to fast. I, I can't remember why, but I decided I was going to fast. And I, I was sitting at a gate like two hours before time because that's when somebody from St. Louis could take me to the airport. And I lowered my newspaper. And there's my cousin's wife walking across 
in front of me. And without even thinking, I go, yelled out her name, and she looked at me, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, shit, now what do I say? <laughs> yeah, I'm here with a bunch of sexaholics. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, something that's always worked for me, so you, you know, use it if you can. It's like, oh, I'm here with, um, with some friends. Uh, and that's what I told the people at work uh, when I told them I was taking off today. I got a bunch of friends coming to town. This is like a family reunion for me. Um, so, so we exchanged pleasantries, and she went on to get her flight. She was flying to, to Houston on business. Um, she lived in Houston at the time. She was flying back home. And then I'm thinking, oh, crap. You know, my nosy aunt, who is her mother-in-law, uh, is living in Detroit, and she's going to know in a heartbeat that I was in St. Louis. And what am I going to tell her when she says, oh, I understand you ran into her in the airport. And, uh, but as, 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 as what happens in this program, you know, the stuff that we fear never happens. And, and, it, and it didn't. And so, um, you know, I thought about some things that... Uh, um, you know, that have happened to me in my recovery. So I, I, was, I was single and sober for the next um, 11 years. I got married, uh, remarried two days after my 11th sobriety birthday. Uh, got to do some interesting things uh, during that time. I uh, got to, um, to date in sobriety, which was... Probably in retrospect, it was very funny. Um, you know, there was a time at church where the this uh, this couple wanted to introduce me uh, to a woman that was available at, at this church, and and you know, I didn't know who she was, and and uh, he said, you know, well, I'll, I'll point her out to you. So you know, we had a, this handshake time during church, and this woman happened to be in the choir, and and uh, so I were doing this handshake, he comes and puts his arm around me and points at her like this. And I'm, you know, I, I, I could have crawled out of the place. Um, we never did quite work, work, you know, what am I going to, what am I going to do? You know, I, um, you know, am I going to go out with her or am I not going to go out with her? Turns out I didn't. Um, but I, I learned a very strong lesson then, you know, you know, don't tell people that you're, you're interested unless they're people that you really know well and they're not going to embarrass you in front of other people. Um, I met, you know, like I said, I, you know, I'm, I, I was pretty much a fundamental Christian. Um, you know, it wasn't until I came to Nashville in, in 1988 that I, I got my first sponsor. So I was uh, a little over four years sober when I asked my uh, current sponsor of... Um, 30 plus, or maybe 30 years now, um, to be my sponsor. He turns out to be an Orthodox Jew. Um, so, you know, in, in my life, I was seeing a lot of gray. You know, I, I, I was really a, attracted to the fundamentalism because of the black and white, because that really worked for me. And, uh, but I was starting to see God speaking to me through this Orthodox Jew. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I, was, I was starting to see some some uh, gray in my life, and uh, so 
after four or five years of dating and not you know, meeting anybody, and, and uh, um, I, I finally met this woman who turned out to be from my old denomination before I became a fundamentalist. And, uh, you know, and she was really nice, and, and uh, she was attractive, but not a trigger. And uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, going through my head, you know, gosh, I don't think I can buy this, you know. She's, you know, she, you know I just, but then I could hear my sponsor's voice saying, you, you know, you dummy, you're taking her out to dinner, you're not going to marry her. And, uh, and so when I listened to that voice in my head, um, I said, okay, I can go out with her. And uh, make a long story short, after about a year and a half, we, we got engaged. Um, and that was, after, that was after my sponsor had told me, I don't want to talk to you again until you tell me you're engaged. Uh, I kind of, I you know, he, he also suggested while we were dating that I should have this checklist uh, of all the, all the characteristics that this person should have. And, and uh, I, it, it kind of, I considered it for a while. You know, it sounded like it was uh, something that would work out. Um, I was 44. Uh, she was 33 when we when we got married, and, and she wanted to have kids. And you know, based on my family story, I wasn't sure that that was something that was really gonna that I really wanted in my life. Uh, I, I had my hands full with me, and uh, um, but we decided we were going to try to have kids. And and uh, after a couple of years, we we really just. You know, we found out we had, we had issues. And uh, um, so my advice to you, if you decide to get married late in life, get tested because uh, it'll save a lot of trouble. And it turns out we both had issues. Uh, the, the problem is um, you have to provide samples. And so how do you do that? And uh, it, there's a great movie out there. Uh, Billy Crystal is in it. It's called Forget Paris. And there's a great scene in there. So, the, you know, the first time I had to provide a sample, you know, it was, it was a major crisis. Uh, one of the things I've learned in this fellowship is anything that, that I'm about to experience, somebody in this fellowship has, has experienced that. And I, and I shared it at a meeting. I'm scared to death. I haven't masturbated in, in over uh, 14 years at that point. And I, I have to provide a sample. And uh, there were a lot of laughs on that one. Uh, and, and, the, and the first, and I, when I explained to my uh, urologist and, that I was a sexaholic, he said, you're a what? <laughs> I, I've, I've never heard of such a thing. Tell me more about it. So, uh, so anyway, he gives me my little kit, and you know, I, um, you know, I, I, I talk to people. I, we prayed about it. All this, you know, I, I, and you have to get your sample to the hospital within a certain amount of time. And so I go running up to the desk, and I put my brown paper bag on the on the on the counter, and the woman says, "What's this?" And I said, "Well, I'm with Doctor So and So," and he said that. You have to bring in your sample. And, and she said, well, we, we don't do that every day. You, you've, got to, you've got to call 48 hours. 
So, uh, so once we found out we had a problem, um, then, then it turned out that our only option was in vitro, um, conceiving outside the womb. And uh, guess what? You gotta, you gotta produce on the spot for those. Uh, they have a little closet. It's right across from the nurse's station. So when you come out of the room, everybody pops up. Uh, but the uh, but the result of that, we you know we, we did it three times. We were successful the third time. We had one embryo. First time we had three. The second time we had two. Third time we had one. Um, he is now six foot three. And he called me today, and um, you know we have this program. We have this in the state of Tennessee. You get two years of uh, community college free, and then you can you can transfer to a four year school, provided you take a certain amount of hours and you get a decent grade point. My son called me today, and I'll end with this. Called me today and said, "I may have lost my scholarship." And, uh, you know, my heart's in my throat. And I said, oh, really? And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to practice my 10-step. You know, we first practice restraints. You know, my heart's in my throat. I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to choke him. <laughs> and I said, so what happened? And he said, well, you know, I, he's, the, my advisor said I could, I could, I could um, take an incomplete on this class, but that... You know, that means I didn't get enough hours, but he thinks we might be able to work it out. I got two weeks before semester starts. He thinks I might be able to finish up that class, get a grade. And I said, it sounds like you're handling it just perfectly, son. And he said, okay, Dad, I just wanted to let you know what was going on. And I hung up, and I, it's going to be okay. So, um, you know, I've, I've got more things to be thankful for um, because of this program. Um, I didn't think what I said was particularly funny. Um, but <laughs> look, looking back at it, you've got to laugh. And, uh, last, last thing, yeah, the first, uh, one of the first conferences, I think was in Kansas City. I think it was, you know, maybe 86 or whatever. They actually, out on the, on the hotel marquee, it said, Welcome Sexaholics. <laughs> So, you know, we've gotten a little bit more discreet since then. So, so anyway, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, we're going to open up for questions or comments or um, thanks. Where's the cards? Anybody got any questions? Anybody got a card? Anybody got a question? Go ahead. Hey, Mike. I got into recovery that 
maybe I'm trying to be funny for some affirmation. Mm. Mm. And so where did you draw that line? And I guess it takes prayer and, and just self-evaluation. So, so the, the question for the uh, recording is, um, you know, how does, how does um, humor and affirmation and telling jokes, you know, what, what struck me about what you said, and thanks for the question, is, uh, um, you know, am I, am I trying to perform? And, you know, my, my wife is a, uh, is a professional singer, and, uh, and, and she does it in a church setting, so it's not... You know, she's she's really sensitive about people who who, who want to perform, and uh, you know, um, I know my tendency is to deflect things by humor. You know, one of my when we get into a topic that makes me feel uncomfortable, uh, being from Tennessee and from Nashville, um, you know, one of my one of my favorite lines is, how about those Titans? You know, uh, when we're going down a, going down a direction that uh, I'm uncomfortable with. So, I, yeah, to me, it's, a, it's about awareness. You know, I, you know I, I've heard it said that in AA meetings, you know, the Al-Anons are meeting next door and the AA guys are yucking it up and having a ball. And, and they're over there, you know, talking about, you know, all this crap that's going on in their lives because of the alcoholics that are over there yucking it up. And, and uh, I, I really like that. Um, and we do a lot of that. You know, when I was, when I was dating, you know, when I was single, you know, the guys in my, my fellowship in Franklin uh, made up uh, sayings every year. Uh, one of them that I remember was sex free in 93. Um, um, so, Every year, you know, one one of the guys in the program would you know would would coin a new phrase for my for my upcoming year, and I said, "Yeah, you, you guys are real, you know, you, you're you're really funny." But uh, <laughs> but I can look back at it now, and it's a lot of fun. So, would you like to comment? Yeah. On um, you know, I, I also use humor to hide uh, when I feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I can I can lighten the, this what's going on up. And it also, you know, it protects me from, from maybe uh, being honest with a, someone. What I am very fortunate in that about half of the meetings I go to, and I'm, and I, you know, I, I'm pretty jolly, and people, people have told me they like to be around me because I lighten the room up. And, but half of the meetings I go to is with my sponsor who knows me better than anybody else. And so I, and I don't know how y'all are, but sometimes I read faces when I'm talking, and uh, and so if I'm telling, if I'm particularly doing something kind of funny or crazy, you know, I'll look at him, and uh, and and depending on how he's looking, will will give me a hint. But 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 more than that, but more than that, I mean, open and honest communication with him, you know, because I said, you know. Did you were there? Did did it come off all right? Or what are you there? You know, and he'll tell me. He said, you know, you sound like you're full of shit, or you, <laughs> or or you know, I, I laughed at that. I liked that. That was pretty good. So so that's what I do is is uh, check it out with someone. A question for David. Just um, being single. Um, my name's Ed. I'm a sexaholic. Visiting from Israel. Came last night. Um, I've been damn sober a year and eight months, and I've been dating. Um, and you mentioned a line about 
um, attractive but not a trigger. And I realize that for me, um, I'm trying to work out, is she attractive, is she not attractive? And I asked my sponsor at the time, is that a human tendency or am I being a sexaholic on a day? And he told me, well, there's a normal part of, you know, trying to work out, am I attracted to this uh, girl? So I just want to know, David, if you have experience on that, trying to work out, am I attracted to her without trying to well, uh, you, you just gave me a great segue. I'm going to be talking about d- dating tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, uh, so I'll, I'll address it then, but uh, I, I'm thinking of a funny story related to that. So uh, my, my sponsors, uh, my sponsors... Um, did, you, did you summarize what he said? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the question, uh, the question was about being uh, a, a, attracted but not a trigger. And uh, for me, that there's a... A real clear distinction. I, you know, I I know a trigger in a nanosecond, um, and it's it, and it gets back to you know what what Roy and and um, our founder talks about in, I think in recovery continues the picture women. You know, you know I was conditioned by the by the pornography that I looked at to, to you know that that was attractive to me. Okay. So, so you know, my, my sponsor's baseline, when it came to uh, physical uh, attractiveness, um, his, his baseline was, does she make you want to throw up? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, you know, we, that, that sounds really judgmental. <laughs> But uh, I, I know he said it for a purpose, and 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 that was, uh, I you know I was, um, I was attract you know my radar was always on, and I was attracted to certain types. And when I when I started dating um, uh, in sobriety, um, I really, you know, if if I met somebody who was was. Um, just seemed like a nice person, you know, I, I really tried to just rule out what they look like. And, and I know, again, that sounds very judgmental. And, but I think one of the things I learned in my sex education that I took in my 40s that I could have gotten in my 20s, but my, it turns out my mother-in-law um, taught sex education. <laughs> and... And so, uh, you know, I had to go back and learn the stuff that a lot of people got earlier. Uh, I didn't get that. And, uh, and one of the things that it says is that men tend to be more visually attracted than, than women. You know, women are, are more emotionally um, connecting, and, and men tend to, tend to be more visual. And that, so that kind of helped me, you know, um, that... Not all of my characteristics are are pathological. They're not sick. You know, part of it, it's the way I'm wired as a male. Yeah. So, so anyway. I'd, li- I'd like to say something about that, too. Um, so I went to lunch today with a couple of friends, and there were two occasions where I could, I could give myself that test at, at Panera Bread. I mean, within 30 minutes. And one was this really sweet, short, fat lady that was waiting on me that was not my sexual template um what do you call it what kind of template um 
Yeah, anyway, she wasn't a trigger for me at all. <clears throat> Arousal template, that's the word. She was not that. But, but she, you know, within our short conversation with me ordering, she called me honey, sweetheart, cutie pie, dear. I mean, I was eating, I just loved all of that. <laughs> and, and I wasn't triggered by it. It was just nice to hear somebody, and that's, and that's how she relates to people, with those endearing terms. And it just, you know, it just, yeah, I wanted to order some more stuff, you know, just... <laughs> Um, and then, but then, the, but then later in that same in that same thirty minutes, a, a pretty I like women, I like to to view women, and a, just a pretty lady passed me, and I, and I thought, and I didn't, you know, I didn't do this and this and keep going back to her. I, I know better. I mean, I've I guess I've I've gotten some some growth, but I know that I appreciate what she looks like. That is an attractive woman. She's not for me. And then I went on with my conversation with my friends. And I won't, I won't take that image won't be burned into me, and I won't take it to my room tonight and do anything about it. But it's just normal for me. And I'm, and I'm glad that I'm at a place in my recovery where I can appreciate a pretty woman for, for that. And that's all. <clears throat> Other questions? What time are we supposed to be in? Huh? We've got plenty of time. Hi. Uh, thank you for your service. I'm Lyle, the sexaholic. Hey, Lyle. Uh, um, I find one of the uh, more recently in my recovery, I've been finding um, an ability to laugh at my own insanity really helpful. <laughs> And the, the thoughts that I, I get just out of the blue, someone gave me the term intrusive thought, mm. and I, I found that to be, oh yeah, that's what that is. It's just I'm wired to think a certain way and, or interpret something or fantasize completely unintentionally. It just pops in my head at work or wherever. And I find myself more and more often able to just find how, think about how ridiculous that thought is and be able to laugh at it. And I guess I was wondering, are there other places in your recovery, especially early on, where you found you know, finding, you know, laughing at yourself as a, as a way of, of, of processing? So, so the question was um, uh, the individual's finding things that they are He's learning to how to laugh at himself, and he's asking, are there other things that uh, maybe we've discovered in our recovery that have kind of helped us in a similar way? Is that kind of... Where do you find comedy in your recovery? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's no... You know, only you people understand what goes on in my brain in the course of a day. You know, it's just... It comes out of nowhere. Uh, um, I think part of it is, is... uh, post-traumatic stress for me, uh, based on my childhood and stuff, I get flashbacks and I get triggered and this crazy crap goes on. I, I think what you're describing, you know, Harvey would call mindfulness, you know, being, being aware there, there it goes again, you know, there goes my disease again. And, uh, that's, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. So do you, uh, would you like to make a well, comment? What, what I have about that is 
is it goes back to when I was sharing about uh, don't take yourself too seriously. You know, I, I, I'm not perfect, surely not perfect, but occasionally during the day and every day, I, mean, I don't have a day that I go without taking myself too seriously, believe me. But, but when I can catch myself and find myself thinking, you know, wow, where are you going with that? You're not so special. I mean, you're just a plain vanilla sexaholic. Um, and, and I can just kind of laugh. And, so, and, and I really like to be transparent. It's important for me to tell somebody when I'm crazy. To, you know, say, you know what just went through my mind? Or call somebody or see a friend or call my sponsor or, or whoever. And just, and just kind of, you know, it's, it's not really a secret. But I like, to, I, like, I like people to know what's going on in my crazy self. Hey Spencer. Um, sure, this question people are going to laugh at it, um, but as I finally started to transition into longer term sobriety and dating and all that good stuff, um, one thing that like I really struggled with from a fear standpoint, and, and this the answer to this question is probably going to be more um, just from as far as expectations and things like that go, that I just got to let go and let God. But your, your story was deeply inspiring to me because something that is, has made it difficult for me to let go in the dating arena um, has been just kind of wanting to experience a youth like love experience. You know what I mean? Like it's if I really let go and I, then I have 11 years of sobriety, you, you know what I'm saying? Like then I miss out on youthful love or whatever and those sorts of things. Help me maybe overcome some of these delusions and some of these expectations and Maybe you could share some of your experience, how you were able to, you know, let go and, and let God do what's best for your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the question was, um, I've uh, been sober for a while. Uh, do I feel like I'm, uh, nothing's happened yet? But, uh, you know, have I missed, am I looking back and missing something? You know, am I regretting something that I may have missed because... You know, I was working this program and, and hadn't met somebody yet. Uh, is that kind of close? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just, just, mostly just being able to surrender. Because I have a hard time, like, surrendering dating expectations. It's almost going to happen before I miss. Yes, yes. Okay, so, so I was, um, as I said, I was in my 40s. And uh, it only took me about nine years. So maybe it'll be better for you. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I've been dating for about four and a half years and, and um, nothing had happened. And uh, um, my ex was still single. And we, we had a conference in Rochester, New York in 1994. And uh, um, I called her and I hadn't seen her in eight or nine years. We'd been divorced by that time for seven years. We were... We were uh, separated for two, and then she filed for divorce. So we'd been divorced, separated by, for nine years at that point, divorced for seven. So I called her, uh, uh, landed in Rochester in January. Why would you ever have a conference in Rochester, New York in January? There was three feet of snow on the ground, typical Rochester. Uh, and uh, we went out to dinner, and we had had a lovely dinner in she opened up by ordering snails. I said, you're eating snails? I mean, this is a woman who, 
you know, didn't like pepperoni on pizza. Uh, and, and she's eating snails, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, when did this happen? And, uh, you know, over the, over the, and I, I, I have to admit, in the back of my head, I had this idea, you know, after nine years, she's going to see this, this wonderful recovery in this guy right here. And, uh, you know, when, when I did my night step with her um, and told her I was a sexaholic and, and, and she, she denied it all. And, uh, but, I, you know, I, I did the best I could to do my night step. So anyway, um, she knows why I'm there. I'm there for a conference. And, uh, and I realized at the end of the dinner, even though we made plans to have dinner the next night, um, that, you know, we had gone separate paths and uh, it wasn't going to, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And I came home from that conference, you know, we, we made plans to have dinner the next night and she backed out, which is, that's what she did. And um, I was, I was depressed for a couple of months and, and, uh, and then it hit me, you know, I'm, I'm nine years sober I've got this wonderful fellowship of Sexaholics Anonymous. And at the time, in Nashville in 1994, there were almost as many women in the program as there were guys. And a lot of them were my age. A lot of them were my age, and they were single. And um, they became my my brothers and sisters in recovery. And... uh, um, you know, we did things and we, you know, we did raft trips. We did, uh, we did all kinds of stuff and we socialized. We learned how to be around the opposite sex without there being all, you know, all the crap that goes on. Um, and after a couple of months, you know, it just hit me, you know, I can do this one day at a time and it may not be in the cards for me. You know, I may not meet somebody. And um, I met my spouse about nine months later. And uh, so, you know, you're going to know, you know, I'd say just keep doing what you're doing and uh, you're going to know. And and those people in in my group of recovery ended up being my uh, my ushers and usherettes in my wedding. Um, My Jewish sponsor read the Old Testament lesson at our at our at our uh, uh, Christian wedding. And uh, um, so, you know, you can't make this stuff up. You know? so. I don't have anything. Can I end it? Sure. Yeah. Okay, that's the, uh, I guess this, this session is, is, is over. And I'd like to say this. Anything you've heard is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of this essay are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Let's close with the third step prayer. And listen here, I'm going to preach a minute. Don't, don't hold hands, and every chance you get to not hold hands this weekend, take it. Because there is a lot of sickness and flu and viruses and stuff that are hand, transmitted by holding hands. And so I just want to put that out there. <laughs> Uh, you can do anything you want to. I've, told, I've said what up my face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my age. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.